we've had some first-rate guests in our time. But Baroness Hale of Richmond is in a category of excellence all on her own. In a stunning career, she taught law at Manchester University, qualified and practiced as a barrister, specialized in family and social welfare law, and was founding editor of the journal of that name. She was also a founding member of the Human Fertilization and Embryo Authority. Uh, she was the first woman to be appointed to the Law Commission. She became a High Court judge, the second woman to be promoted to the Court of Appeal, and then she became the first woman law lord. She became the first woman justice of the Supreme Court and president of the Supreme Court between 2017 and 2020. And as many of you will know, in September 2019, in this position, Lady Hale declared the Prime Minister's suspension of Parliament as unlawful, a ruling she described as a source of not pride but satisfaction. For all her achievements and fame, Lady Hale is known for her accessibility and rejection of pomposity. Lady Hale, thank you very much for joining us. You're warmly welcome. Uh, your participation is eagerly, eagerly anticipated by everyone uh, at PHSO in the conference today. Well, thank you very much indeed for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all. Thank you. Now, we've talked to our colleagues about what they want to ask you, and many of my colleagues want to know what qualities you regard as important in rising through the ranks of what is a heavily male-dominated profession and how you countered stereotyping and discrimination? That's a very interesting question because it's not one that's easy to answer from a subjective point of view. Others may observe how I have behaved and attribute it to uh, trying to make headway in a heavily male-dominated profession. But actually, I suspect that I just carried on regardless. I was a bit oblivious to the fact that everybody around me was male, especially in the early days of my career. I was a bit oblivious to any possible discrimination which I suffered. I just carried on. And I think that is the only thing to do. Um, for anybody who fears that they may be suffering discrimination. There obviously was some discrimination and there certainly is stereotyping. People imagine that men have a career pattern and women have a completely different career pattern. But I was fortunate enough to be in academia for the first 18 years of my professional life. And academia is much less stereotyping than the standard uh, independent legal profession. Mm. Uh, and so perhaps that helped as well. Thank you. Don't let the bastards grind you down is what I always say. Okay, that point, point is well made. Um, on reflection, um, what more uh, might be done to promote inclusivity and greater representation in administrative justice systems from your perspective? Mm. Well, 
Number one is to recognize that inclusion and diversity are important for their own sake. Uh, and in the judiciary, that has probably only been recognized in this century. I think in the public sector generally, and the public service of which you are a part, it's been recognized for a great deal longer. Uh, and forgive me, I don't think that the ombudsman sector is uh, quite as heavily male dominated or as stereotypical as the uh, ordinary legal profession and judiciary are. So the first thing is to recognize that diversity and inclusion are a good thing for their own sake. And once you realize that, you can start to ask yourself, well, why aren't we more diverse? What are the stumbling blocks to having more women, more ethnic minorities, more disabled people, and so on and so forth? And once you start asking yourself that question, you can usually find out some answers. And once you find out the answers to that, you can start trying to tackle them. Now, I could go on forever about this. It's a very large subject. Uh, but as I say, asking yourself the right questions is the beginning of finding the right answers. Thank you. I, so having an inquiring mind and being sceptical, I think is very important. I, I'm the first male ombudsman for nearly 20 years. So uh, that, that is mm -hmm. encouraging mm -hmm. and um, probably yes. my success. <laughs> Um, can we just move on and uh, can I say that uh, our caseworkers regularly have to make very difficult decisions, often in cases of bereavement in the health service where babies die tragically, um, and they're under pressure and they make decisions that people uh, may be very disappointed by because of the lack of evidence in particular um, situations. Could you give us a couple of examples of complex and challenging decisions that you've had to make in your career? Mm. Um, of course, I have been both a trial judge and for a large part of my career as a judge, an appellate judge. And there's all the difference in the world between being a first instance decision maker and being an appellate decision maker. And probably the most challenging cases that I had to decide in the sense in which you're describing them were when I was a trial judge in the family division. And I was having to decide a lot of the time whether to take children away from their parents. And of course, um, the parents were going to be gravely upset and disappointed if you decided against them. And it was usually the less risky thing to decide against them. So one of the most difficult things as a family trial judge is learning how and when to take risks because I think we had protection, which the social workers didn't have. The social workers, like the prosecutors, have to put the case before the court. Uh, but it is for the court to decide uh, what the right solution is, uh, and not simply to rubber stamp the decisions that they have taken. 
So those were unquestionably the most difficult and challenging in the sense of trying to persuade a very disappointed person that this was the right answer. In appeals, of course, it's different. Somebody else has found the facts and decided where the evidence lies and so on. And we're just deciding what the law is. Uh, but possibly the two most challenging appellate decisions that I can think of, but there were loads, they're all difficult. Every case in the Supreme Court involves an arguable point of law of general public importance. One was the Montgomery case. This was a clinical negligence case uh, in which a mother, a pregnant woman who was a small framed woman, uh, was, she was a insulin dependent diabetic, as a result of which of course she was having a large baby. She was not warned of the dangers of a small diabetic woman having a large baby and in particular, the risk of shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia is when the baby's shoulders get stuck uh, after the head has gone down the birth canal. It is a major obstetric uh, emergency. And she was not warned of that, and she was not offered uh, the choice of having a cesarean with the pros and cons of uh, that as against a vaginal delivery being properly explained to her. And uh, it was tricky because we had to um, revisit the previous law on informed consent to medical treatment, which we did. But it was also tricky because my male colleagues were, when it came to causation, quite largely focused on the risks to the baby. And actually the risks to the baby of the sort of catastrophic brain injury that this baby suffered are comparatively small. Mm. But the risks of having shoulder dystocia were not small. And of course, these are risks to the mother and her whole experience of giving birth. And to get them to focus on the risks to the mother as well as the risks to the child was quite a challenge. But I am very proud of how that decision uh, turned out because it recognized patients as people with their own values and their own choices to make rather than uh, having to be dependent upon the values and choices which their medical advisors made. Uh, and I think we've learned a lot from that case. So that's one example, relevant to the work of the Health Service Ombudsman, which is why I'm mentioning it. Uh, the other example, of course, was the prorogation case. But that was mainly a challenge because of the huge speed with which it had to be done. There was no point in our hearing the case uh, and if uh, we couldn't do it extremely quickly. Mm. Um, and there would have been no point in our deciding uh, that the prorogation, the, the advice to Her Majesty was unlawful uh, if we did so weeks after um, Parliament was coming back anyway. And the other point about it was we had a decision in England that the prorogation could not be challenged in court 
and a decision in Scotland that the prorogation could be challenged in court and was null and void, which meant the parliament had not been prorogued. They couldn't both be right. There's only one parliament. So uh, we had to decide between those two extreme positions. And we were able to do so in a remarkably quick time and we were unanimous. And so that was an extraordinary challenge to achieve all of that in such a short amount of time. But it wasn't my achievement, it was a collective uh, endeavor, which is why I always say that it was a satisfying case, not because there's any satisfaction in, in finding that anybody in government or public service has acted unlawfully. The satisfaction is the fact that we managed to do it in double quick time and we managed to be unanimous about it. Thank you. It's quite so, a long answer, but it's an interesting question. It, it's quite chastening that you mentioned this in the week that the Ockenden report has published its first uh, findings in baby deaths in, in Shrewsbury and that these kinds yeah. of tragedies go on and on and on in a way that hasn't we haven't found a way of stopping. But let me just li link the two examples together and ask you about any emotional stress associated with having to make decisions in those circumstances. Is that something you factor in or does it come with the territory of having been a judge for a long time? It probably comes with the territory of having been a judge for a long time. And as I said right at the beginning, the emotional pressure is much greater when you're the first instance judge, which of yeah. course your caseworkers are the first instance judge. So, um, and of course we are not dealing with it on the papers as first instance judges, we're dealing with it in a hearing when the people are there in front yeah. of us, we can see them. We can see how they're reacting to the evidence as it comes out, the emotional tension in a family uh, courtroom is very high indeed. And so you do have to learn to cope with it. I hope it's not hardening one's heart because you have to retain empathy for what the people in front of you are going through. And it's not only the parents who are going through things, you know, the social workers, the doctors are also going through quite an emotional time. Uh, but they are professionals and so it's easier for them. But as judges, we are professionals. So we have to learn to um, combine a degree of objectivity and, and empathy. It's all right, it can be done. It's, you could do it. It's very interesting. We're, we're beginning to move into the area of mediation between the parties, which mm. involves this uh, kind of face-to-face uh, uh, engagement and that requires much more emotional intelligence from case handlers than would be the case if they were just looking at the papers but I think it's a good discipline so it's interesting mm. to hear you say that. Oh it undoubtedly is. Um, you, As an appellate judge all you're doing is reading the papers. Uh, the people may be in the courtroom but you're not hearing them give evidence uh, and there is nothing like hearing somebody give evidence to understand how they feel about the whole situation. In the second case, 
what was different about that was that you became a media star on the front page of tabloid newspapers for, mm. for a period. And you, you were put under great pressure by, uh, by people in the political sphere. Did that have an impact on you or do, do you just disregard all of that? Well, um, I was very surprised at the level of interest in the case, which was all over the common law world, the Anglo-American common law world. Um, they had been watching this with huge interest and concern uh, because of uh, their belief that this was a very significant case for the rule of law uh, and the constitutionalism of the way in which uh, not only the United Kingdom was governed, but also other parts of the Commonwealth in particular. So I was surprised at how much interest there was in the case. I was even more surprised at the huge interest that my spider brooch um, <laughs> provoked. Um, I've always worn brooches. I hadn't chosen a spider deliberately. It just happened to be there and it happened to provoke a lot of interest. But as a judge, you have to be ready for the people who don't like your decisions to um, protest about them, uh, as long as they do so in a reasonable uh, and understanding way, that is fine. Um, but uh, it's not fine, of course, if they do so in a way that brings the whole system into disrepute. That shouldn't happen. Yeah. You will have to face the same sort of thing. The public authorities that you have to find against don't like it, do they? They don't, and the complainants don't like it either. And I've always no. said that the one thing you mustn't want as an ombudsman is to be loved by anybody, and I'm sure that's yeah. probably true of judges as well. No, I think um, that's one of the difficulties is, of course, that uh, for just exactly that reason, judges tend to be mainly friendly with other judges and perhaps other senior members of the legal profession, which is one of the things that we have in this country. There's a lot of links between the, the senior uh, members of the legal profession and the judiciary, but that's where we tend to have our uh, closest uh, friendships on the whole, because <laughs> we don't want to appear to be over-friendly to one side or the other uh, of, of any particular debate that crops up. Okay, thank you. Um... Now, your late husband was himself the pensions ombudsman, which is the only ombudsman in the UK with binding powers. Now, I I'm struck by how unjoined up the administrative justice system is in relations between the courts, tribunals and ombudsmen. So I wondered if you had any reflections on the current role of the ombudsman and how we can make the institution more central and relevant to citizens. Mm, I think that's something which I probably shouldn't um, pontificate about. Uh, of course, Julian was the pensions ombudsman, which is a statutory role, but it is basically a private sector role, because although the pension schemes that he dealt with were quite a lot of them in the public sector, he dealt with all uh, occupational pensions, and basically it was a question of disputes between the scheme and the member of the scheme. So it was a private law system, very different from yours, which is a public law system. 
And <coughs> in a private law system, there is no particular objection to an ombudsman having uh, the power to make binding orders, as long as there is an appellate route, uh, as there was from him into the ordinary courts. And there was a big debate between um, him and the ordinary courts because his statute said that he was allowed to make uh, decisions that were uh, just and fair or fair, just and equitable, which uh, was intended to give him the broader powers that you have to decide questions not in strict accordance with the law. So that's how he interpreted it. The courts, of course, were used to dealing with things strictly in accordance with the law. And there was a considerable tension throughout his uh, uh, tenure there about that. And that is a, a problem, I think, a tension um, that in a way you shouldn't have, but the price that you have to pay for being able to make decisions that are not strictly in accordance with the law is that your decisions are only recommendations and not binding. You might have mm -hmm. to wonder which you would prefer. Um, frankly, um, I think that, of course, the best would be to have both, as indeed Julian did, but uh, there we go. Before that, he was insurance ombudsman, which was a uh, non-statutory, but similarly private sector role, uh, and is now uh, the financial services ombudsman. So uh, it has become a statutory thing. Uh, but again, those bodies, the ones in the private sector, uh, do have different challenges from the ones that you have. <laughs> you, you all have uh, challenges, but they are of a different nature. I'm looking at the mess that the South African public protectors getting in, having binding powers, and I certainly don't want uh, mm. uh, to mm. have to have mm. that responsibility. We need to uh, mm. uh, finish. I would love to go on, but uh, time is limited. Could we just end by asking you how you've coped with the personal challenges of resilience during during the pandemic? Well, of course, I retired in January. And so it was not uh, a huge challenge uh, to retire to North Yorkshire uh, from where I am speaking to you now. Uh, and the pleasures of beautiful countryside, beautiful house, beautiful garden, and settle down to write my memoirs. So that was quite an easy way to get through uh, the uh, first lockdown. Uh, and, uh, and now we have all learned to meet one another remotely um, on Zoom. And in fact, one can meet many more people as a result. So there's lots to be grateful for, uh, but I'm sure that we all would like to get back to something more like normality in the course of next year. Absolutely. And all of us will be going out to buy your autobiography when it comes out. Uh, do you know when that's going to be next year? <laughs> Sometime next year, yes. Okay. I can't give you more information than that. In the latter half of next year, I think. Okay. Look, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to talk to you. And on behalf of all my colleagues, I wish you well, uh, 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 seasonal greetings and, and uh, very great thanks for what you've done. Thank you. Well, thank you and seasonal greetings to all of you too. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.